Hi, and welcome to the February 3rd episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. And it's my desire to, I bet you can say this with me, to help you grow in your understanding and enjoyment of God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Today's reading uh, is uh, just in the Old Testament, no New Testament reading today. Today's reading is Exodus chapter 31 through 33. Once again, it's Exodus 31 through 33. And I'm telling you, I can't wait till we get to uh, chapter 33. One of my all-time favorite verses is in that chapter. So we're going to get to that momentarily. Uh, If you haven't already read the uh, chapters, then I would encourage you to hit pause, go read the chapters, and then come back. But if you have, I hope you're ready. Let's get started. Okay, so let's look at Exodus 31. Uh, As we look at verses 1 through 11, we uh, realize that uh, we have already read chapters where the Lord has gone into detail as far as the building of the tabernacle, the tent, and all of the furniture. The dimensions have been given, uh, what the the furniture is to be made out of and what the tabernacle is to be made out of was also um, elaborated on. God made that very clear. Um, Also, we've read chapters on the priest's garment and the ephod and the turban and the breast piece and all of that. Um, Well, somebody's got to know how to put that together. Somebody's got got to be able to make sense of the instructions and to come up with something that is worthy of the place where God would meet with his people. And so in verses 1 through 11 of this chapter, we we come to understand that the Lord has selected and uh, dedicated uh, uh, some people to actually do the work. And so we understand here that whenever the Lord desired for something to happen, he wanted the right people to do it. Um, I'm so, so concerned and bothered about the fact that in so many of our churches, we we claim to celebrate a God who loves perfection and a God who is great and loves greatness. And yet so much of what is done in our churches across our land and probably around the world is apathetic at best. And a lot of it is because people get put into positions where they have no desire to do what they're doing. They just, the church just needed a warm body. And so they just put somebody there and maybe they're not even skilled in it. They don't have passion and they don't have skill. Um, I'm telling you, when we look at the Old Testament and at the New uh, and we see what God blessed, it was when people who were gifted in certain areas, used those areas of giftedness to serve others and to bless the Lord, right? The two greatest commandments, to love God, we worship him, we bless him, we glorify him, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so here we see it in chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. God said, hey, I don't want just anybody putting this thing together. I want it done right. And so let's get some skilled people to do it. Strive for excellence wherever you attend church, wherever you're a member. Strive for excellence. The Lord is worthy of that. Verses uh, 12 through 17, we see that the Lord once again is elaborating on the Sabbath law. This is a big law in the Old Testament. It was to remind the Israelites that they were a people set apart for God, and they were serving the God who rested from creation on the seventh day. 
And uh, if we're not careful, we can read this law and think, oh my goodness, why is God so, you know, crazy about this law? And why is he so intent that they obey this law? I'm telling you, you could look at it that way, or you could hear God saying, guys, gals, work six days, take the seventh day off, and it's on me. Just rest one day a week. I don't want you to work. And in fact, Kim and I, as we went over to Israel a few years ago, even though Israel is probably now one of the most secular nations in the world, right? Because Romans 11 tells us it's the time of the Gentiles right now. There will come a time when the Israelites come back. But right now, they are secular. But still, by and large, overwhelmingly, they observe the Sabbath. And to them, it's not a necessarily a religious thing. It's just a cultural thing. And so all of the food that you would eat on Saturday has been prepared on uh, Friday. Uh, the roads that were packed on Saturday, uh, I mean on uh, Friday and you know, throughout all of, the, all of the other days of the week, on Saturday, you could lay down on many of the roads and just go to sleep on the major thoroughfares because nobody's driving. I'm telling you, there's something very attractive about the Sabbath law that God gave to the Old Testament. And I believe that the spirit of that law still should be applied. Now, we apply it to the first day of the week as we celebrate the Lord's resurrection. But there should be that day whenever we rest. It's not just physical rest, but it's also a day of spiritual rejuvenation. As we look at the uh, the end of the chapter, we come to realize, particularly in verse 18, that Moses gets the two stone tablets. God himself inscribed the law on those two stone tablets. And if you're familiar with the story, you realize those tablets aren't going to last very long. Okay, so now we get to Exodus 32, and this, this chapter is about the golden calf. It's about the golden calf. Um, I'm, I'm not going to summarize this. The story pretty much tells itself, and, and you don't need me retelling the story, but I do want to bring out a few things that, that maybe you didn't see. One is, is if you are inquisitive, you may be thinking, well, why did they make a calf? <laughs> you know, if, they, if they're going to go all out and just go full pagan, why not make something else? Why, why a calf? Well, the thing is, is that uh, the calf was worshipped both in Egypt and in Canaan. It was worshipped in the place where they had been held in slavery, and it was also worshipped in the place that they were going to conquer. So it was two sinful areas, two sinful nations that worshipped the golden calf. And here Israel is supposed to picture someone who has been, uh, as a saved person, has been, the chains of sin are off. They can now choose and are prepared with God's Holy Spirit to, to uh, choose holiness and obeying the Lord and to abstain from sin, and yet so quickly they're going back to it. So quickly they're going back. Um, one of the things that I'll, I'll tell you, and, and you know you can think about it, maybe write it down, is there's 
basically two things. Of course, the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Holy Spirit. And also prayer. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. Prayer is a big thing um, if we are to abstain from temptation and abstain from sin. But there's two things in regard to our relationship with the Lord that will keep us from sin. One is love for God. The other is fear of God. One is love for God. The other is fear of God. Love for God says, I love the Lord so much. I love getting to know him. I love seeing his handiwork. I love experiencing the moments of my day with him. I love his grace that comes my way. And I'm so thankful to him that he's been so gracious to me. And love motivates us to not want to hurt him, to not want to do what he's told us not to do. Jesus said, if you love me, do what I tell you. Well, yes, if we love the Father, if we love the Lord, we're going to obey and we're not going to sin. We sin whenever we fall out of love with the Lord. But also, I didn't just say love for God, I said fear of God. And whenever I say fear, it's not a terror. It's, it's not someone who was abused and, you know, they've got fear. It's not that kind of fear. But it is an understanding that, that God is holy and just and is worthy of our praise and worthy of our obedience and our submission. And if we disobey, he loves us too much not to discipline us. And so he will discipline us. He will get our attention. The book of Hebrews says, if you sin and you don't get disciplined, then you don't belong to God. You're not saved. And so we don't want the Lord to discipline us. We don't want to do uh, something that would displease him. And so therefore we have a very real understanding of the fact that he is holy, he's not to be trifled with, he's called us to obedience, and he's going to discipline us when we disobey. But when you lose your love and it grows cold, your love for the Lord grows cold, and your fear of God also wanes, you are ripe for sin. If, if you want to be someone who is gaining the victory over sin, then you're dependent upon the Holy Spirit. You cannot do it without him. You're spending time in prayer, of course. But in your understanding of God, you are growing in a love relationship with the Father, and you are growing in a healthy fear of the Father as well. Both of those key ingredients. In verse 9, I do want to point this out. Uh, you, you probably noticed that stiff-necked uh, showed up in verse 9 and, and a few other places here in the chapter. Uh, and you wonder, oh, what's that about? Well, if uh, imagine if you were plowing a field right now, but you're not sitting on a tractor. Let's say you're plowing a field and you've got an ox up there in the front. And so you are, you've got this plow right in front of you and the ox way up in the front. And you notice that the ox is veering off to the right. And so you need him to come back to the left. And so you take that rein and you pull the left rein because you know if you pull his head, he's going to begin veering to the left again, right? But let's say that ox has a stiff neck. He refuses to budge. And so you're pulling on that left rein to get him to go left, but his neck is not budging, and he keeps going straight. He keeps going away, going away from where you want him to go. So you pull harder on the left, and he's not budging. He's stiff-necked. What that means is he's stubborn. And no matter what you want him to do, he's not going to do it. 
That's what stiff-necked means in the Bible. When God says the people of Israel were stiff-necked, it meant that I have reached out to them. I have tried to pull them to myself. I've tried to direct them into the way of righteousness, and they are so stiff-necked that they are not bending. I cannot get them to do what I desire for them to do. That's what God's talking about. Uh, Friend, I pray that that is not true of you and me because we see that God was so angry with these people, not just in this situation, but in others. There There are times when God just wanted to get rid of the Israelites. Here, um, he, in the next chapter, threatens not to go with them, threatened not to bless them with his presence because they were stiff-necked. God said, if I went with you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> um, whenever we get to verse 14, there's another phrase, and I think I've dealt with this before, but I just want to touch on it again. It says, the Lord relented. You know, he, he was angry at the Israelites, and Moses is interceding. He's pleading on behalf of the Israelites, and it says, and the Lord relented. Your translation may say repented. And we might say, whoa, whenever I repent, that means that I'm headed the wrong direction. I did something wrong, and I need to turn around. I need to do what's right. So repentance means I acknowledge that I'm going the wrong direction, and I've done the wrong thing, and I'm going to turn around and do what's right. So what does it mean when God repents or God relents? Well, this is this is something um, that I, I just want to remind us again. God's ways are so higher than ours. God is so infinitely above us that if God described himself in the way that he acted, if God completely unpacked who he was in terms that he would understand that would be precisely the representation of what's taken place, you and I wouldn't understand it. We wouldn't have a clue. And so the Lord essentially is saying in his word, I've got to speak on their terms. I've got to describe myself in a way that kind of, sort of is what I do, but it really just, it, it's, it's pretty close to what they would understand. And so whenever we understand the Lord relented, we don't, we don't understand that the same way that we would relent or we would repent. All that's meaning is, is from Moses' point of view, it looked as if God changed his mind. But honestly, Moses didn't have a clue what was really going on because God is so far above us, we cannot understand him. Only glimpses. And so when you see the Lord repent, the Lord relent, don't say, oh, that must be what I do. No, that's just a word that the Lord used as he worked through Moses to write this so that we would have some idea of what he is doing, but it's he's really very different from that. His experience is very different from ours. Uh, verse 19, um, Moses throws down those tablets. Remember the, when we looked at verse uh, chapter 31, uh, God wrote on those stones and wrote the law. And, you know, I said, hey, he's not going to have it for long. Well, in verse 19, he throws it down and that law breaks Now, I don't know um, if Moses just blew a gasket and he just threw it down and broke it, if that's all that it was, or if this was God's way of allowing Moses' anger, which obviously Moses had, to picture what the Israelites had done. Moses broke the stone tablets of the law because the people of Israel had already broken God's law. 
I think that it could be that this is just a powerful picture of what the Israelites had already done. It's not like Moses did anything different from them. They broke God's law by worshiping an an image, an idol, having another God before them. It may even be that them having this experience, you know, looking at some of the words that are used, particularly one of the last words in verse 6, it could be that there was a lot of promiscuity going on in this. And so it could also be that they were breaking the law of you shall not commit adultery. And so Moses threw those tablet stones down, uh, tablet down, the, the stone tablets down and broke them. In verses 27 and 28, um, Israel um, was being seen or could have been seen as a bunch of hooligans. And so they might be perceived to be weak and undisciplined and maybe the object of a military attack from one of the the peoples, one of the nations around them. And so this was a capital offense that had happened. And so God's judgment came through Moses and the Levites stepped up to the plate and they went out and killed about 3,000 people. This was God's judgment upon them. This, they had put the Israelite nation in a very precarious situation and people may die. And so... God disciplined them, and uh, 3,000 were killed. Probably the 3,000 were maybe the leaders of the groups who were known to have been involved in this. Uh, Maybe they were those who were at the forefront of this and led the crowd and stirred up the the mob. Um, So, But we do know that God demonstrated his judgment on them. In verse 29, the Levites uh, were actually set apart for the Lord because of them stepping up to the plate and being a part of something. This this was this was not good, but I would imagine that uh, someone, the doctor who goes into uh, someone who has the lethal injection put into their arm as society has condemned them and found them guilty and worthy of the capital uh, punishment, and then the doctor that goes in, I can only imagine what that doctor must experience as they carry out the judgment. But that's what's happening with these 3,000 people uh, dying. Verse 32, uh, Moses, he demonstrates his love for the people in such a way, in such a profound way, that he volunteers to die if the people are punished with even more death. We see a leader who loved his people and didn't, even though God was saying, hey, get out of the way and I'm going to start another nation, God would do that a little bit later on, and Moses continues to advocate for them. Moses gets angry at him, but he doesn't want God to be angry at him because he's afraid that God would would annihilate them. And so Moses stands up for them. And even in verse 32, he says, Lord, if you're going to kill them, kill me too. This is a leader that loves his people. Okay, so now let's look at the final chapter, Exodus 33. As we come to this chapter, uh, essentially, it's it's similar to Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, uh, the Lord met with Abraham on the plains of Mamre and um, was headed after, you know, he promised that Isaac was going to be born uh, within a year's time, by, by that time the next year. Uh, 
the next chapter, verse 1, finds two of the three, two that had shown up with the Lord in Genesis 18, two of them go into Sodom, they're angels, and they go in to pull Lot and his family out. But the third person that met with Abraham on the plains of Mamre is the Lord. And so at the end of chapter 18, you have Abraham um, not arguing, but uh, pleading with the Lord. Lord, would you destroy those cities? Would you destroy them for 50? The Lord says, no, I I wouldn't do it for 50. Oh, Lord, what about 45? No, I wouldn't do it for 45. Oh, Lord, please listen. Now would you do it for 40? Would you do it for 30, 20, 10? Abraham was pleading with the Lord, and the Lord allowed it all the way down to 10. Well, here in Exodus 33, we see the same sort of thing happening. We see God telling Moses that I'm very angry with the people of Israel. They are so stiff-necked. They're so stubborn. He said, if I were to go with you, I would have to kill (laughs) y'all. I just couldn't put up with all of the disobedience and stubbornness and pride and and uh, idolatry and everything else. God said, if I were to go with you, I would have to kill you. So I will send you, Moses, you take the people on the way, you go on into the promised land, but I'm not going with you, God said. And so we see Moses pleading back and forth with the Lord, pleading with him. Now, let me ask you a question. Is, is God someone that we have to talk off the ledge every now and then? No, of course not. (laughs) Of course not. Well, is God someone who is indecisive and we can show him a better way? No, of course not. But what I think we see in situations like Genesis 18 when Abraham was pleading with the Lord back and forth and then we see Jacob wrestling with the Lord there in the the night before he would meet Esau and here we see Moses pleading with the Lord and we see the Lord willingly participating in this. I think it's because the Lord, among other things, loves passion and he loves relationship with us. He doesn't need us. God didn't create mankind because he was lonely. He has existed in perfect unity, in perfect relationship, in perfect peace and happiness from all of eternity. There's never been a time that God did not exist, and he didn't create us because he was lonely. But as he has created us, he loves us. He loves you. And I want you to see that whenever God's people plead with him and wrestle with him, maybe as we would say, wrestle in prayer for us New Testament saints, God loves it. Don't don't be frustrated. Don't don't be timid. Don't think that the Lord is, is not happy with you pleading with him and wrestling with him in prayer. I tell you, the Lord is frustrated with vain repetitions, with things that have no heart. But friend, I'm telling you that if you have heart, if you have passion in your prayer and you are pleading and wrestling with the Lord, go for it. Go for it. I'm convinced that the Lord loves it. And Moses was enjoying that. In fact, in the middle of this back and forth, we have verse 11. Listen to this. The Lord would speak with Moses face to face just as a man speaks with his friend. The God of all creation and a little bitty peon that was a speck that was infinitesimally smaller than a speck in in the, the, the eyes of the Lord. 
God graciously bowed down and spent time with Moses and would speak to him as a man speaks with his friend. Friend, I'm telling you that there, there's a, a friend that, that uh, stays closer than a brother, and that's Jesus. I'm telling you that God didn't just save you because he didn't save you because he feels sorry for you. God didn't save you uh, just so that you could stay out on the fringes. God wants you to come into, as it were, the tabernacle, come into the courtyard and keep on coming until you get into the Holy of Holies. God ripped that veil into so that you and I could come in and enjoy his presence. God wants us to enjoy time with him because he enjoys us. And God wants to speak with us as a friend speaks with a friend. He wants to speak to us from his word. So don't you sit down and read your Bible just as a book. You listen to God speaking to you from his word to your mind and to your heart. And then you reflect back and speak back to him as your heart offers up prayers. Be like Moses. Speak with the Lord face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. Uh, whenever we get to verse 18, um, this is one of my all-time favorite verses in the whole Bible, hands down. Moses has been back and forth with the Lord, and if you read the flow, it's almost like verse 18 is, is like, where did that come from? <laughs> Because it's just back and forth, Moses pleading with the Lord, the Lord speaking and, and moving back and forth between the two. And all of a sudden, Moses just said, Lord, please show me your glory. That, what is God's glory? Well, I, I believe that as we look in the Old Testament and in the New, the glory of God is the physical manifestation of his essence. It's, it's, it's who he is. And so when we see, like in Luke, that the shepherds were out in the field and the angel showed up and the glory of the Lord, right? Glory of the Lord shone around about them. Well, obviously we're talking about a light, but I think we're talking about something so much greater than just a light. And we're told in the book of Revelation that there will be on the new earth, which is the, the heaven that we're going to be in forever, is a new earth. Just read the last two chapters of Revelation. But on that new earth, it says that there will be no need for the sun. It doesn't say we're not going to have a sun. It's just saying we don't really need it. Why? Because the glory of the Lord is going to light that place. So when Moses said, please show me your glory, part of it was a brilliant light. But if all it was was a light, then I don't think Moses would have been pleading to see it. <laughs> Because it's just a light, right? It would have been inconvenient. He didn't have sunglasses with him. You know, they didn't even have those back then. And so, you know, he would have been covering his eyes. So what's the benefit of a big, bright, painful light that's hurtful to your eyes? I think when he said, show me your glory, that demonstrated that the glory is something that's very attractive to the human spirit. I think it's not just the light. I think it's the essence of God's goodness and God's grace and God's holiness. It comes out of God's holiness. And I think it's not just a light. I think it's, it's a presence. It, it's, it's what will make heaven heaven. 
Whatever the glory of the Lord is, it is something so beautiful and so attractive that Moses wanted to experience it. Now, as far as the light and the glory of God, the odds are in this life, we're probably never this in this life going to see that. And most people didn't. Peter, James, and John, they saw it in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, as Jesus went up on, I think it was Mount Hermon, and his glory radiated out from him, called the Transfiguration. We're, we're just probably not going to see that. But the glory of the Lord shows up in the beauty of God being demonstrated in us enjoying a moment and realizing that this is a moment created by the Lord, or us the Lord enabling us to lead someone to faith in Christ, and we just have such an excitement inside of our heart. That's the glory of the Lord, I think. Um, it, it's, it's looking out at a beautiful night sky and realizing that your God created all of that and gave you that moment for you to enjoy it. You can experience the glory of God. The glory of God is the essence of who he is, and it's something that's intended to satisfy our soul. Satisfy our soul. Being a Christian is not just about following rules. The Pharisees tried to follow rules, but I don't want what they had. In fact, not only do I not want what they had, I don't think they were happy with what they had. And besides that, Jesus was angry at them for what they had. I don't want that. All they did is try to obey rules. I want a relationship. I want to experience God's glory. And I hope you do too. Well, what we see at the end of the chapter is God said, Okay, Moses, keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times. I'm about to show you my glory. And in fact, that's what we're going to see as we get to tomorrow's podcast and look at Exodus chapter 34. Now, one other thing I just want to point out is in verse 23, God says, Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. Once again, talking about a back and about a face. Um, I, I, let me tell you this. I do not think that we will ever see the Father in heaven. Okay, I know I've got your attention now. I think that as we look at the Father, as he is manifested, he is manifested in his glory. But I believe that if you see God with skin on, God with a physical manifestation, if you've got something like that, you're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the one that makes him known. Jesus is the one that shows us what he's like. Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So when we get to heaven, we are going to see God. I believe we're going to see Jesus. But as far as the Father, I think that he is going to be experienced in his glory. The brilliant light there on the throne, the intoxicating light, but he's there on the throne, but also he exists completely everywhere at all times. And, uh, you know, also the Bible says that God is invisible. The Father is invisible, and so whenever, back to this passage, whenever we're talking about a face and you'll see my back, I think what the Lord once again is doing is saying, Moses, if I were to try to describe it the way it actually is going to happen, you wouldn't understand it. 
But so I'll talk in terms like you would understand, okay? So I will let you experience the glory as I pass by in all of my glory. I'll you can't handle it all, so I'll just let you see what's left over behind me. Let's call that my back. And uh, face, I think Moses didn't actually see God's face when it says that he spoke to him face to face. I think that was just um, that was just a way that Moses wrote that that he just sensed such a closeness and a presence to God. But once again, I think that you know the Lord doesn't have these features. He's just describing himself in a way that we can understand. I don't think that we, we may, but I don't think that we're ever going to see anything of, of the Father other than his incredible glory and hear him speak. Uh, I think that whenever we do see God in flesh, though, with skin on that we can actually touch, I think we're talking about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you. And um, Lord, I realize that I've, I've speculated a little bit regarding the nature of the Father and whether or not we're going to be able to see Him. And Father, ultimately, you know the answer to all of these things. Uh, you've given us your word. You've, you've encouraged us to be in your word, to study it, to understand it uh, so that we can think biblically and so that your Holy Spirit has your word hidden in our hearts so that we won't sin against you, but we will also pursue holiness and make wise decisions and understand you and everything else. And so, Lord, I just pray that even as we have looked at these things, that, that you would, in our hearts and in our minds, fan into flame a desire to know you more, a desire to experience you. As Henry Blackaby talked about it, to experience you, not just to obey rules, but to experience you. Father, our nation here in America, we need a revival so badly. Father, wake up. Wake up the church. Cause us to realize that the, the saints in the first century church turned the world upside down, not because they obeyed rules, but because they were saturated with your spirit and they were captivated by your glory. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in us. We love you, Lord. Help us today as we continue to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've come to the end of another episode, and I hope you've enjoyed our time together. Once again, um, whenever, whenever you're listening to me, um, whenever I am speaking out of Scripture, there's going to be times whenever I state things very clearly, and I think it's just so clear in Scripture, and I'm going to state it authoritatively. I could still be wrong. And so I want you all, like the church at Berea, I want you all to be like the saints in the church at Berea that's talked about in the book of Acts, to go and check your Bibles and see if what I'm saying is true. If it's not, put it on the Facebook uh, group page and uh, let's talk about it. I would love to do that. But there's also going to be times whenever I speculate, and I'm going to try to, to let you all know when I'm doing that. Um, and uh, you know, just to let you know, this is kind of what I think, but I'm not sure. I just never want to lead y'all wrong. So, so when you hear me speculate, and don't buy into that. Uh, just listen to what I'm saying, and you know, come up with your own biblical convictions. Anyway, I'm looking forward to spending some time with y'all tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye bye. <laughs>